If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. George Eliot is hailed as one of the greatest novelists of the 19th century. And in many ways, the writer's life was just as fascinating as her work repeatedly challenging the restrictive norms of Victorian society. Philosophy professor Claire Carlyle is the author of a new book on Eliot, which examines her unconventional experience of marriage and her fascination with philosophy, and questions whether we can see these reflected in her books. I spoke to Claire to find out more. For those who don't know much about George Eliot, might have no idea who George Eliot is, can you start us off with a quick potted introduction? Well, I guess the first important thing to know about George Eliot is that she was a woman. Her real name was Marion Evans, and George Eliot was the the pseudonym, the pen name that she adopted when she started writing novels. So she's well known as a Victorian novelist. She wrote uh, six or seven or eight novels, depending on how you count them. Some of them are more like shorter stories. She's most famous for her great novel, Middlemarch. Um, But actually, the very first novel she wrote, Adam Bede, was a bestseller and kind of launched her on a really 
uh, celebrated literary career, basically in the middle of the 19th century. So what first drew you to George Eliot? Well, I read George Eliot at school, as many people do. I read her novel, The Mill on the Floss, for my English literature A-level. So that was my first encounter with her. But it was really years later when... By this time, I'd done a philosophy degree and I was working as a, as a philosophy teacher and an academic. And I was really into this philosopher called Spinoza, who was a 17th century philosopher. And he's basically my favourite philosopher. And then I discovered that George Eliot actually translated Spinoza's masterpiece, which is a philosophical text called The Ethics. So I just became really fascinated by this conjunction of this, you know, great English novelist, George Eliot, and then Spinoza, my favourite philosopher. And I became really intrigued and wanted to know more about why she translated Spinoza and, you know, why she was interested in, in his book. And so I, I, I did some research and realised that she was really into philosophy and so then I started to see her as a philosopher and not just not just as a novelist. Obviously, she was an amazing novelist, um, but, but that she was also someone who was doing important philosophical work through her fiction, that she was reading loads of philosophy. So then I decided to make her the focus of my next research project. So for people who aren't familiar with George Eliot's novels, what are some of the themes, what are some of the main issues that she tackles in them? Well, like many... 19th century novels. They are about people and relationships, family life, marriage, often their their love stories uh, of one kind or another, although often um, George Eliot's love stories are not particularly happy ones. But yeah, so she wrote about ordinary people, lower middle class or middle class English people. She came from the Midlands, from Warwickshire, um, and certainly her first novels are set in this kind of middle England, quite obscure setting. She just was interested in in human emotions, in, in, in relationships, but at the same time, she also herself was a staggering intellectual figure. I mean, she was just supremely gifted, intellectual. She, As I said, she read loads of philosophy and, and literature, and she was interested in the history of religions and contemporary science. So there's all this, there's, on the one hand, you know, the novels can be read as quite straightforward stories about, about people, families, you know, farmers or whoever, um, and, and their love lives. But on the other hand, there's all this philosophical and intellectual weight to the novels as well, which she handles often with quite a light touch. So you don't necessarily know that that's all there in the background. The title of your biography is the marriage question. And you say that Eliot, quote, pursued marriage with the tenacity of a great philosopher. So what kinds of questions was she asking about the state of marriage in the 19th century? Yeah, I mean, I guess she was exploring the experience of marriage from the inside. So she was interested in questions about freedom, dependence, power dynamics between people, ethical, moral questions about happiness. I mean, there's the idea that a marriage is supposed to make you happy. I mean, often marriage in a novel is like the happy ending and we're just kind of left to see the newlyweds going off into the sunset. And so she's interested in what lies beyond that, <laughs> um, what lies beyond the wedding bells and what kind of happiness or unhappiness you know, might kind of transpire within a, a couple's life together. Also interested in questions about trust, betrayal, fidelity, faithfulness, which of course are questions that arise within 
a romantic relationship, a committed relationship. But she also kind of tracked those to more religious questions about, about religious faith. I mean, in the 19th century, there was a kind of, to some extent, a kind of crisis of faith where many Victorians were, particularly intellectuals and people on the avant-garde, were questioning Christian faith and so on. So um, in a way, marriage and questions about faith and trust for George Eliot become, becomes partly a metaphor for these wider questions of um, spirituality and religious belief in her own time. And of course, this all becomes much more interesting when you realise that Eliot herself had a very complicated experience with marriage as an institution through her life. Could you tell us a bit about a defining relationship she had and how it may have shaped her views about marriage. Again, this is before she became George Eliot. She was in her mid-30s and she got together with a writer, a journalist, uh, also a philosopher actually, called George Henry Lewis, who at the time was quite well known. He edited a London journal. He was kind of a radical thinker influenced by Shelley and sort of romanticism. Yeah, so he was quite a well-known figure on London's literary scene. He was married to a woman named Agnes, and Agnes Lewis was, you know, having a fairly long-term affair with Lewis's close friend, Thornton Hunt. So Lewis was in this sort of unhappy marriage, basically, um, when he met Marion Evans, as she was then. She was also an editor in London, and they got together, and then, quite scandalously, they decided to make their relationship public, and they left London and travelled uh, to Germany together. And, and at that time, just you know, a man and a woman travelling together was not an acceptable thing to do unless they were married. Their relationship caused this scandal. And then a few months later, they came back to England and, and settled down together, found a place to live. And this was just a really controversial thing to do. I mean, clearly, as the case of Lewis's own marriage shows, people were having extramarital relationships all the time. It was That was extremely common. But to publicly transgress the marriage, the sort of rules of marriage, was, was quite another matter. So to actually live openly together, both of them in a way, you know, committing adultery because Lewis was married to somebody else, that was really scandalous. Something I was really intrigued by was the fact that Elliot called herself Mrs. Lewis. Why do you think that she made that decision? Yeah, so what's really interesting about the relationship is that they, they weren't married and they never were able to, to legally marry, but they described the relationship as a marriage. So she would refer to him as her husband, he referred to her as his wife, and she asked her friends to call her Mrs. Lewis. Obviously, there was already a Mrs. Lewis who was, who was Lewis's legal wife. So one of the things that's so interesting about their relationship is this, on the one hand, they're transgressing marriage in this public way, quite unusually. On the other hand, they are interpreting their relationship as a marriage and wanting it to be recognised by others as a marriage. So this, this gives them quite an ambiguous sort of status. And in a way, she's kind of stretching the very concept of marriage rather than seeing marriage as something that's a legal status, a socially sanctioned relationship, something that's sanctioned also by the church. She saw marriage more as an experience that a person could have and as the kind of truth that she was living by being in a committed relationship rather than as some kind of more official legal state. The very fact that she calls her relationship a marriage 
is quite radical because it, in a way, it wrests the very concept of marriage from the grip of church and state and claims it as something that's to do with the authenticity of an individual's choices. Um, and that's probably something that really resonates today with our with our modern sensibility, but it certainly didn't resonate with, uh, with Eliot's contemporaries. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply well, yeah, exactly. Eloping with a married man was an incredibly bold and brave decision to make at this time. As you say, they faced um, social condemnation for it. What do you think that the relationship with Lewis offered Elliot that she thought was worth that sacrifice and worth that risk? And did that gamble pay off? Yeah, yes, well, that's a good question. So, so as I, as I mentioned before, she was in her mid-30s by this point, which, you know, was, was quite old, really, to still be a single woman. She'd kind of given up hope of marriage by this point. And perhaps that itself is a reason why she was prepared to take this step, because, you know, a more conventional marriage just hadn't really been available to her. She had, you know, fallen in love with a couple of people. It hadn't worked out. And she was somebody who really needed affection. She really wanted intimacy and companionship you know she was someone who was in some ways emotionally you know quite fragile and she really wanted somebody to kind of take care of her and you know Lewis was a man who who fell in love with her and wanted to be with her and desired her so that itself I think for her was really kind of confidence boosting I think you know her esteem might have been quite low because she had been rejected by a couple of other people so that's one factor that the more 
you know, the more sort of emotional side of it. But there's also the fact that Lewis really opened doors for her. As I mentioned, you know, he was quite a well-established writer, what very well connected. He was friends with you know, Charles Dickens and Thomas Carlyle, um, Thackeray, you know, all the all these quite eminent and successful Victorian writers. And at that time, you know, she was editing a journal, but she was still relatively unknown. And um, she was very ambitious and she had uh, literary ambitions, philosophical ambitions, intellectual ambitions. And I think Lewis was somebody who, you know, may well have seemed like someone who was going to help her pursue that vocation. And then there's also the fact that he, he was notoriously um, unattractive physically, apparently. People used to comment on the fact that he was, you know, the ugliest man in London and this sort of thing. But on the other hand, he was quite charming. He was an extrovert. He was very cheerful, funny, witty, and quite different from her because she was, a, in some ways, a more reserved kind of person, had a more melancholy disposition. And so, in a way, that they, they kind of suited each other. I think his cheerfulness and in, even his brashness was quite a nice compliment to her more sort of introverted nature. So they were quite well suited on a kind of personality level as well. And it was with Lewis that Marianne Evans, as you say, became George Eliot and found success as a novelist. Can you tell us a bit about that decision to adopt this pseudonym? Was it was it purely because it was difficult to be published as a woman? No, it wasn't. I mean, Jane Austen had obviously been successful as a novelist. I mean, by the 1850s when... Um, Eliot and Lewis got together, you know, Jane Austen's novels were, were really popular. Charlotte Bronte, who did write under a, a male pseudonym, but people knew that she was a woman. She'd been a successful novelist. So a large part of the decision, I think, was because of her, Marion Evans's reputation as a fallen woman, that if she'd published something under her own name, people would have immediately judged her because they knew about her personal life and this, this, this controversial marriage decision. So I think that was certainly a large part of it. But there's also the fact that, as I mentioned before, her novels are very intellectual. She has an ambition to do serious, philosophical, intellectual work, social commentary, um, a kind of analysis of the time they're living in and its history and so on. So she was wanting to be taken seriously, not just as a novelist, but as a thinker. I think probably she would have felt that if she'd just published under, say, a female pseudonym, because she could have chosen a female pseudonym um, to hide her own identity, but that perhaps her novels wouldn't be taken so seriously as works of, of philosophy and, and social commentary as, as than if they were by a man. It's always very tempting, isn't it, when we're talking about artists or writers to try and project their life experience into their work. But how much do you think that that's fair to do so with George Eliot? Do you think that we can see this this fascinating relationship that she had with, with marriage appear in the works that she published? Well, we can certainly think about that question. I think it's very legitimate to think about the relationship between her experience of, of marriage, her quite specific experience, and then the way she portrays it in the novels. That's not to say that she's necessarily representing her own experience when she's describing other people's relationships. So you've got to be careful about being too simplistic there. And George Eliot is a very sophisticated and very subtle writer. Actually, when she began to write novels, she often based her characters on, on real people, people she'd known or people she'd heard about. So not so much on her own life, but on the lives of other people that she was you know, in, in contact with in some way or had heard about. One thing to think about is the fact that she really often 
develops really dark marriage plots. So she shows domestic abuse, for example, you know, domestic violence. Um, she shows women being manipulated and controlled by their husbands. In a couple of novels, she shows husbands being manipulated and controlled by their wives. And she shows real, real unhappiness, real disappointment in a quite deep experience of suffering in married life. And she also talks about the fact that couples often hide those problems from the outside world. So one way of reading that is to say that she's kind of exposing the hypocrisy of this Victorian marriage idea, which had judged her so harshly, and to say, well, actually, people who are legitimately married, respectable people, there may be so much more beneath the surface of those lives than is than is revealed to the world. So I think that's certainly quite a thought-provoking way to make a link between her own experience and um, her novels. But I think there's also the possibility that some of those experiences of disappointment, for example, or uh, feeling controlled or feeling compromised in a relationship, those might well have been experiences that she had firsthand. And in my book, I try to trace some of the clues to those experiences, you know, just as she says in her novels that, that couples tend to hide their problems from the world. She and Lewis certainly did this too. So they projected quite an idealised account of their relationship. They always sort of told friends how perfectly happy they were, how every year their marriage was getting more and more kind of blissful. Um, and I'm not trying to say that their relationship was actually, you know, ex really unhappy, but but I'm also find it hard to believe that any relationship could be as perfect and sort of problem-free as they they tried to portray theirs. So I, I, I'm kind of interested in the book in trying to get beneath that facade that she and Lewis both presented to the world. Well, that is a really intriguing challenge as a biographer, especially when you've got a relationship that's so central um, to your subject's life, about how you get at that reality of a relationship. What are the sources that you you're working with here to try and uncover that, like you say, to get behind this facade or this public front of a marriage and get at the reality of the relationship behind it? Mm. Well, it's difficult because, um, I mean, the sources are um, you know, letters that um, both Elliot and Lewis wrote to friends and acquaintances. The letters that they exchanged between the two of them are not available because they were buried with them. Uh, so we don't have that evidence of what they actually wrote to each other. Um, so we can only speculate about what that might reveal. I mean, because they lived together, it, it may not reveal very much, actually, because they didn't spend much time apart. And then there are diaries and journals. But it's not as if those sources contain secrets, because they were quite careful about those those sources, particularly because, you know, by the by the time they both they both died. They were both very famous, so they would have been very careful to make sure that there wouldn't have been any surviving evidence. So it's been much more a case of sort of tracing certain themes. So, for example, there is a kind of... Lewis emerges as quite a domineering character and in some ways quite controlling. And sometimes that comes out through her portrayals of him. And sometimes she's joking, like she says, oh, Lewis is commanding me to put my bonnet on and go out for a walk with him. And But just the fact that she's using words like command, and even if she's doing it in a quite lighthearted way, that seems to be some a kind of running theme through um, various accounts of their relationship. There were also, you know, because they were famous, there were sort of other people wrote about them, people were very curious about them, uh, people would go to their house and, and 
meet the great George Eliot and then write about it and, you know, have their own reflections about the couple and their relationships. It's, it's been a case of sort of gathering and gleaning clues, really. And also also in the novels themselves. As I say, not, not in any kind of simplistic way trying to say that they're representing her experience, but finding some of the themes that she becomes preoccupied by. For example, you know, in the 1860s, she wrote this novel called Romola, and that's a book that's really preoccupied with themes of trust, betrayal, disillusionment. At the same time, something that we know did happen in their in their relationship is that Lewis, in quite a manipulative way, persuaded her to change publisher and to sell the rights of the book to a different to a different publisher, which is something that you know, it's kind of clear that she didn't want to do that. And it's also clear that Lewis was a little bit underhand in the way he brought that about. So just seeing those themes emerge in the novel alongside, you know, some fairly minimal inf information about what actually happened, but we know enough to know that that was a really difficult issue that they navigated as a couple. And the question of who had control of her writings, um, because Lewis acted as her, as her sort of publicist, her agent, he sent her works to the publisher. And in many ways, you know, we can see him as a really fantastically supportive partner of a woman who was more successful than him. Um, so there's a very positive story to tell about that. But then the flip side is that that could sometimes tip into a fairly, into a sort of controlling behavior. So it's very complex and quite ambiguous. And I guess I'm interested in exploring those ambiguities, not necessarily wanting to find a clear resolution, um, because I think often in, in life and in relationships, couples kind of inhabit these ambiguities. And it's not necessarily clear to the couple themselves where you would draw the line between being protective and supportive and then being controlling and domineering. It's quite difficult to judge when you're inside a relationship, let alone when you're looking from the outside in. So I guess I'm just exploring those themes in the book. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier that later on in their marriage, both became famous. How did fame sit with George Eliot? Did she like it or was it a curse rather than a blessing for her? Mm, well, again, I think ambivalence is probably the key word. Actually, she really struggled when her first novel was incredibly successful um, she struggled with the fact that she was anonymous and no one, she didn't get recognition for this work. So she got this letter from Charles Dickens, you know, addressed to George Eliot, a kind of fan letter, and she was so delighted. But then she was also at the same time upset that she wasn't actually able to get the recognition herself for this. So as I say, she was ambitious and she wanted, she wanted to be recognised. She wanted to be, I mean, she wanted to have the recognition that she felt quite rightly that she deserved. And so celebrity and money were signs of success and she wanted those things. At the same time, as I say, she was quite a reserved person and she was very wary, actually, of people speculating about her private life. She was very wary of expressing political views, for example. It was almost like she just wanted to be expressed through her art and she didn't like to be scrutinized as a person and so in a way she kind of hid behind Lewis who as I said was much more extrovert and um, but he was always sort of curating her image and you know as publicists do. After more than two decades together Lewis died in 1878. What impact did his death have on Elliot? Well as as we can imagine and understand she was devastated by the loss of Lewis. I mean they'd been together for 24 years and 
had collaborated very closely professionally as well as being partners, obviously. And so I think like like most wives who lose a, a husband of 24 years, she entered into a, you know, a period of terrible grief. She felt like her world had ended. Um, she stayed at home for, for weeks and just kind of wouldn't see anybody and, you know, felt ill. And um, yeah, but then she, then she gradually tried to rebuild her life. One thing that's quite moving, I think, is um, that in the weeks and months after Lewis died, she she really focused on editing his last manuscript for publication. And I think that that probably really helped her, partly because it obviously gave her something to do, but it was also a way to carry on living with Lewis in a way, because so much of their shared life had been this intellectual collaboration. And actually that collaboration continued through this work that she did in editing her manuscripts. And it also, I guess, was a kind of act of service to him and to his work. So in a way, she, it was very much a sort of wifely <laughs> wifely role, wifely duty that she was able, again, to, to continue with in, in the months after his death. Um, so, yeah, that's quite moving, really. Um, but then, you know, she finished that. She also, you know, her, her own last work, her final work, which Lewis had helped her finish just in the weeks before he died, you know, that that came out and she was just facing this sort of, well, very uncertain future um, because her authorship had been so bound up with the relationship. Um, she'd started writing fiction, after, you know, shortly after she got together with Lewis. Um, I think it wasn't clear how she might continue that work after he died. And in 1880, Elliot married John Walter Cross. And you say in the book that you had basically a debate with your editor about why she may have done this. Can you tell us about some of her motivations as you interpret them for this, well, I was going to say second marriage, but first marriage, officially? Yeah, so, well, I mean, just to say that the, a couple of significant things about John Cross. So John Cross was 20 years younger than George Elliot, and he'd been a close family friend for quite a few years. So he'd been friends with, with Elliot and Lewis and very devoted to both of them, but particularly to her. And um, so, you know, so close, in fact, that they used to call him nephew. And uh, But he was 40 years old and she was 60. So a really very significant age difference. It's a kind of age difference that might be quite acceptable if it was the man who was 20 years older than the woman. You know, we see those quite, kinds of partnerships often. But to have it the other way around, to have a a woman of that age with a man so much younger is is unusual now and it and, and it was it was then too so interestingly this was yet another unconventional marriage and also a marriage that kind of you know provoked gossip and people some people laughed about it and even ridiculed her for it so yes again not a straightforward relationship and as you say in the book, I kind of dramatise a conversation that I, I really did have with my editor about how to interpret the marriage because it's quite shocking in a way um, that, that, that she took that step um, and people have been quite puzzled by it because he was, he was a fairly ordinary person. He was, he was a banker, you know, quite wealthy, um, but no, he wasn't an intellectual person particularly or an artistic person. He seemed quite ordinary so people saw it as an odd choice. And uh, so my my own hypothesis is that part of the reason why she married him was that she was seeking the respectability that had 
eluded her. So even though, you know, she was now this extremely rich, successful, celebrated novelist by this time, she had everything, you know, a, a, a woman could want. The one thing she didn't have was still this sense of a kind of, there was still this sense of a sort of dubiousness about her reputation because of not being married. And, and John Walter Cross was just a very respectable man. And they married in this church called St. George's in Mayfair, which is a kind of society church where, you know, affluent people got married. Um, it was a very proper wedding and a very proper kind of marriage to a very sort of eligible, suitable sort of man. And so it seems to me like it's almost like she's trying to kind of take a second chance at something that um, had always been difficult for her, having made this first decision, you know, back in the 1850s. Um, this this idea of, a, of, yeah, sort of second chances, a second marriage. I think she also was hoping that she'd become more acceptable, particularly in the eyes of the Church of England. And as I said, by this time she was 60, she was very much thinking about posterity, about how, how she would be remembered after she died by this point. And a couple of years earlier, uh, Charles Dickens had, had died and he'd been buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. And I think that, well, it, well, well we have evidence to, to know that she, she also wanted to be buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey. And so this, my sense is that this, this very respectable Anglican marriage, she thought it might help seal the deal in terms of the, in, in the eyes of the establishment. Anyway, my editor was appalled by this idea that, that, that she would have such, as he thought, quite mercenary motives rather than it just being purely a, you know, a marriage to do with, with, with romance and love and so on. Um, and so, yes, in the book, I describe a conversation we have where I say, well, people do get married for all sorts of reasons and usually for a real mixture of reasons. It doesn't mean that we can just reduce the relationship to something very cold and calculating because John Cross was quite attractive. So, you know, she probably liked him in that way. But also, you know, he was he was wealthy. He was he was uh you know, a good friend. She knew that he was a kind person. So he was a companion, someone she felt comfortable with. So she had all sorts of reasons for wanting to marry him. But I do think that this concern about her own reputation, her own image was in the mix and that that's okay. And that actually the choices we make for partners, often that that comes into it, you know, someone we want to be seen with, you know, and, and, and want, to, want to be part of their world. And, and because marriage is um, partly a public thing as well as very much a, a private personal thing so yeah <laughs> it's all very intriguing um, to finish us off I'm going to ask you what might be an impossible question for a George Eliot fan but for anyone listening who hasn't read any of Eliot's work where would you recommend they start well I think it would have to be Middlemarch I think um, if particularly if you're only going to read one book by Eliot, then that's definitely the one to read. For, for many people, it's just, you know, their, their favourite book. And it's probably rightly regarded as her her best book, her masterpiece. Um, but also because it's it's the work of, of, of an experienced novelist. So some of her earlier books, I mean, all her books are great, but sometimes they're a bit sort of difficult to get into. Um, sometimes the humour is there, but you have to kind of look for it and it can be a bit buried. Whereas I think with Middlemarch, you just sort of go straight in and um, yeah, it's just, it's just a, a beautiful book. Um, and I think if someone reads Middlemarch, then they'll want to read everything else um, by this author. 
That was Claire Carlyle. Her book, The Marriage Question, George Eliot's Double Life, is out now published by Penguin. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.